Crypto is for everyone, not just rocket scientists, venture capitalists, and high IQ developers. Welcome to The Agenda, a Cointelegraph podcast that explores the promises of crypto, blockchain, and Web3, and how regular-ass people level up with technology. Bitcoin means different things to different people. To some, it's a highly speculative asset to trade and make money from. To my mom, it's an interesting but still very confusing investment option for a forward-thinking retirement strategy. To many outside of crypto, Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme that only suckers would buy into. But to its most hardcore believers, Bitcoin has the potential to forever change the world for the better. Now, we tend to approach things with what I would consider a healthy dose of skepticism on this podcast. And with all the bullshit being slung around in the crypto industry, can you really blame us? But we seek to use this time we share together to uncover and shed light on the use cases in crypto that really make or have a real potential to make a difference in regular people's lives. And as the OG of crypto, Bitcoin itself surely has the potential to cut through the speculative noise and reach everyday people. So to help us dig deeper into whether or not the future of Bitcoin will be a liberatory dream, a dystopian nightmare, or something else in between, we decided to call our friend and Cointelegraph's resident Bitcoin ambassador and evangelist, Joe Hall, who has traveled all around the world to see and report on how governments and communities alike are using, or not using, Bitcoin to empower themselves. He's recently returned from Cape Verde, where he was shooting a video for Cointelegraph, presumably about crypto adoption of the country, although I'm sure he will clarify for us what specifically he was doing there. So welcome to the agenda, Joe. Maybe that's actually a good way to start out the conversation. Now, full disclosure, we actually tried to record this conversation previously while Joe was still there, and it turns out that the internet was not ideal, <laughs> kept cutting in and out, and we had to take a rain check. And now here we are, you know, almost a month later, re-recording this. And so how was your experience in, in Cape Verde? Uh, how is it being back? How does the fish compare uh, being in the UK versus being in Cape Verde? <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. And hello, Ray. Yeah, I'm actually in Lisbon where the fish mm, is okay, excellent. Okay. This is where I live. Um, the fish in the UK, not so good. As uh, you know, fish and chips is, is not the one, um, <laughs> although it, it still does have a, a soft spot in my heart. Hot take. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Cape Verde, um, yeah, as, as you rightly pointed out, we tried to record there and unfortunately the internet cutting out and the electricity wasn't so stable there. And it just goes to show why uh, Bitcoin adoption in a lot of these territories around the world and why people get very bullish about Bitcoin in Africa, say, because Cape Verde is 10 or so islands just, well, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, due west of Senegal. The reality of the situation is that, you know, unless we can also ensure that everyone has mobile, you know, reliable mobile data coverage, then we're not going to get this hyper-Bitcoinization dream that a lot of the people in the Bitcoin space like to uh, to LARP on about. Um, so yeah, I do take pride and I do love to experience and um, reach out to and hang out with the, the Bitcoin community all around the world. And I've been obsessed with Africa and Bitcoin adoption there ever since sort of getting into Bitcoin and crypto. So, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got into crypto, and how you ended up at Cointelegraph? Sure. It all started, I guess, in 2011 when a friend of mine was trying to 
show me how to buy interesting things off the Silk Road. And I learned that there was this rubbish token thing called Bitcoin that was really slow and clunky. And so I wrote it off as being useless and annoying to deal with. Fast forward to the sort of 2017 bull run and the job I was doing in London at the time, it did come up a bit in the office I worked in, but I wrote it off again because I thought it was this sort of Ponzi scheme bubble, you know, the usual things that journalists like to say. And then it took until 2019 when I was living in the Ivory Coast on the way to work, my driver, it was normal to have a driver, by the way, it wasn't because I was some high flying uh, business person. I just, that was the way it worked. You had a driver and they drove you everywhere. And that was part of the projects you work on as I was a sort of research and interview journalist for a Bloomberg subsidiary called Oxford Business Group. This is sort of prior to Cointelegraph. And yeah, the driver called Guillaume, he explained to me that he was receiving money from his son who lived in Paris. And I was like, oh, how are you doing that? Like Western Union or MoneyGram, you know, one of these money transmitters that's, that are essentially uh, parasitic agencies that take, you know, 13% or more of people's hard-earned money around the world just to send money home or to, to loved ones. And he explained that it was with this thing called Bitcoin. And so I stopped him right there and said, hang on, are you talking about this Ponzi scheme? Because, you know, I'm out to look after you, Guillaume. And slowly but surely, after lots of drives to work with him, I realized that I was completely wrong. That there was a lot more to this Bitcoin thing than I first thought. And yeah, that sent me sort of spiraling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole which I really took seriously at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic because that's when I lost my job with Oxford Business Group and had loads of time on my hands. And so, yeah, properly started to like download Bitcoin content into my brain, was listening to podcasts nonstop, was reading all the Bitcoin books and was generally getting quite obsessed with this thing. And so, yeah, went back to Oxford Business Group of September of that year, so like six months later, and pitched them with Bitcoin and crypto content. And it was funny the way they approached it because they they had an editorial guideline they had a narrative they wanted to push and i had to fit within that so it took me another year and a half of doing that before i really grew tired of it and realized no 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 the real revolution here is bitcoin and i want to contribute to this in some meaningful way with the skills that i have which were you know being a journalist and i'm a polyglot and i'm quite good at being dropped into random places and finding what story is going on and yeah so i looked at the crypto sphere and basically decided okay where can i make a contribution where can I add value and I thought that Cointelegraph had sick art I thought it looked quite fun applied to Cointelegraph went through a few interviews and yeah here I am almost two years later so let's get let's get right into the meat of things so as I mentioned in my intro Bitcoin means a lot of different things to a lot of different people you've explained your journey to how you found out about Bitcoin how you got red pill it's not red pilled uh, orange pilled excuse me <laughs> a very different thing in today's context <laughs> saying that uh, how you got orange pilled and sort of your approach to investigative journalism but at a core level uh what exactly does bitcoin mean to you in your own words oh that is such a hard question bitcoin to me in my own words it's a expression of how we approach the world i guess I mean, it's had an impact in me in, in terms of my approach to people, to, to different cultures, and uh, in the way in which I interact with people, despite the fact that it is just a bunch of code on a screen, and because it's rewired the way in which I look at the world and consider um, things. It's taught me to be more skeptical, um, to not take things at face value, but it's also delivered a lot of hope and a lot of sort of meaning to my existence that perhaps wasn't there previously. As we're all millennials on this call, I think, and we all realize that the world is a pretty shitty place right now. And uh, we can't live in a world that is governed by growth at all costs when we have one finite, very precious planet. 
And I think Bitcoin, for me, it appeals to me uh, because of the way that it flips that all on its head. You know, we have a deflationary currency. There's only going to be 21 million and uh, we can rebuild our economic system off that in a way that raises all boats, not just the elite few. And that it tackles things like the wealth gap and wealth inequality. It tackles things like, uh, you know, the environment and the way in which, you know, Bitcoin mining, it could be this transition to using more and more renewable energies. But yeah, ultimately, it's it's money that you can send to anyone around the world with no middleman. I mean, that's the, the, the crux of it, right? As Satoshi wrote in the white paper, it's peer-to-peer cash. But I think the implications of it, and that's what Satoshi's masterstroke was, was to sort of implicate all of these other far-reaching uh, consequences of Bitcoin, whether it's, you know, solving, not solving, but working towards solving climate change and solving that wealth inequality and the overall centralization of pretty much every system that we interact with online. So something you said and kind of struck me, which is the idea that we can't live on this planet with infinite growth when we have finite resources and a finite planet, right? Hmm. And what struck me about that is that's that's a very common left-wing talking point, right? Yep. But Bitcoin sort of has this association of being right-wing, or like libertarian, I guess, at the very least. And so a lot of people on the left, in my experience, are are very critical of something like Bitcoin. Uh, You know, they criticize the potential environmental impact of -of proof-of-work blockchains. They criticize NFTs as just being the financialization of absolute nothing. I guess that's not Bitcoin-specific. But I think that criticism of crypto in general bleeds over to Bitcoin. And they sort of see... We should be getting away from money rather than embracing a different kind of money and that ultimately this kind of money will just replicate the existing inequalities that exist in the current financial system. So but what you've said sounds like there's a case for Bitcoin for everybody, regardless of your ideological background or perspective, that there's something that you can gain from Bitcoin. So when you're talking to the average person who's skeptical about Bitcoin, what are some of the things that you tell them to kind of show them, okay, this isn't, perhaps this isn't exactly what you're thinking it is? Sure. Great question again. So I actually do this as part of my YouTube content, which I'm not trying to chill here. I'm just to explain this as it's part of the, the answer. So yeah, I stand on the street in the places that I travel with sort of Bitcoin in mind or Bitcoin stories in mind. And I ask people questions, you know, like, can I send you some Bitcoin now? What do you think about Bitcoin? This sort of thing. So I'm quite used to the rebuttals that sort of the mainstream or just people, I'm doing quotation marks here with my fingers because I've realized this is a podcast, you know, that people sort of deliver. And they do tend to be those three things that you mentioned which is, you know, the financialization of everything. And, you know, why do we have to focus on money so much? Money isn't the root of everything. And so to your points, like, firstly, with climate and proof of work mining, I heated my flat over this winter with um, a Bitcoin miner, and it has the same power draw as my regular electricity heater. Um, that's a very small scale example of why we shouldn't really care about this proof of work stuff as much on a bigger scale. Um, if we want to get to net zero, if we want to get to renewable energies powering everything, we have to build out our grids three or four x what we need because of the peaks and troughs of the demand curve and right now it's not attractive or lucrative to invest in renewable energy projects because they're just such capital intensive industries what we can do is say hey why don't you invest in my renewable energy project and also when there's no demand say at two o'clock in the afternoon when the, the power draw in most cities and grids isn't very high we can mine Bitcoin with that energy instead. So when the solar panels are collecting all that energy from the sun at two o'clock in the afternoon, they can mine Bitcoin, which makes the project more energy efficient and more lucrative as well. 
And if we apply this sort of bigger picture analysis to energy, then we can sort of get to the, the crux of the problem. Obviously, it doesn't solve things like wastefulness and recycling and, you know, disposable one-use uh, straws and bottles and that sort of thing. But when we look at energy, Bitcoin has a tremendous impact and will have a tremendous impact on energy. And we're already seeing that around the world from Kenya mining Bitcoin with hydro dams, which enables it to have its own little mini grid running to the Bitcoin mining project in Northern Ireland, where this farm was punished by EU subsidies and realized that Bitcoin mining would help him get along, so get out of uh, that sort of situation, which is, by the way, on the Cointelegraph YouTube channel, which you should definitely check out. It's called The Bitcoin Farmer. So yeah, there's plenty of examples of this already. And I think we're just beginning to see that transition from Bitcoin being this horrible, oh my God, it uses dirty energy to, oh, hang on, Bitcoin already is the most sustainable or green energy industry in the world at like roughly 60% renewable energies. That's far and above any other industry, whether you're looking at gold mining, you're looking at cotton or textiles or automobiles. To your second point about the financialization of everything, this is something that terrifies me and I hate it. I do not want to be able to tokenize my bike, my car, my flat and put it on the blockchain and someone to leverage trade that. I think that we should be able to have our money, which we know that goes up in purchasing power over time, and we can get on with our creative pursuits and be humans and connect and hang out and make amazing things with our brains. And what I've since realized going on a Bitcoin standard, like I sold all my fiat money and went all in on Bitcoin two and a half years ago, and I only earn Bitcoin through Cointelegraph, is all they have to do at the end of the month is focus on the number of Bitcoin I have, like the number of sats I have, and just make sure the number goes up. And that's all I have to do. I no, no longer have to do, you know, I used to have spreadsheets as like a, a young adult and a teenager of like, ETFs and investment funds and all this crap. And I spent hours and hours agonizing over it because I was worried about my future. Like, how am I ever going to retire as a millennial? And now all I do is focus on that number of sats. And that's all I have to do. And also, Bitcoin and crypto gets bundled in together. I think they are very separate beings. This is obviously a huge conversation in all of itself. And MTs and crypto, and I hate to cover the crypto space because I feel there's always a, an incentive or an ulterior motive involved. So yeah, it's not, that doesn't get me out of the bed in the morning, Bitcoin stuff does. And to your third point about money, yeah, money isn't the root of our existence. And I hope I've made that clear that I'm not focused on money above all. However, when you look at a lot of the problems that we face in society right now, whether it's you know inequality or an inequality of opportunity, or just the fact that the rich are still getting richer and richer and richer, while the poor is getting completely bulldoze, let's say. Like in the UK, we now have these things called heat banks. So they're places you can go and stand there and heat up. Food banks are oversubscribed and their levels never seen before. And yet the rich is still enjoying their foie and buying Teslas and Bentleys and all this sort of stuff. So there's definitely something wrong with our money. And it's, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to work that out. Look at the price of your average property versus the average income. And, you know, look at websites like what the fuck happened in 1971.com. I don't know if you know that website, WTF happened in 1971. It makes it really sort of clear the impact of coming off a gold standard in 1971 by the US where, you know, when Nixon took the US off the gold standard. And I think that, yeah, fiat money as a whole is unfortunately one of the reasons why we have a lot of crap that goes on today. And if we can go to a, a better, you know, programmable money called Bitcoin, which has its rules and everyone can take part in it, and all you'd need is an internet connection and a mobile phone and you're there, then I think we'll have a lot of a fairer society, a more creative society and a more connected society. And yeah, that's the world that I want to sort of live in and want to, to build towards. So yeah, this is one way that I have uh, replied to these sort of questions on the street. Obviously, we're in a podcast format right now, so I can really... Um, 
address it properly. But when I'm on the street, usually what I do is I say, okay, mm, that's really interesting. Cool. Wow. Okay. And then based on their sentiment, I say, can I send you some Bitcoin? To which they say, what? Like, no, no. And then I'm like, no, it's really easy. You go to the app store, you download a lightning wallet, and I'll just send you $10 in Bitcoin right now. And I record their reaction and they go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that was so easy. Or wow, it's so fast. Like, and huh, there's no middleman. You know, these sorts of reactions, because naturally our narrative as, or sorry, the mainstream or, or regular people's narrative is, is shaped by what they meet in the, read in the press. And the press's narrative about Bitcoin, as we saw with a New York Times piece two weeks ago, it's negative. Bitcoin mining is going to destroy the world. It uses only dirty fuels. And it's all about getting rich on speculative bubbles. And, you know, I see my role as a journalist to tell the truth and demonstrate to people that A, that's not the case. And B, there are plenty of marginalized, you know, disenfranchised and disadvantaged communities all around the world, particularly African communities that are adopting this currency because they know the future it represents is one that's worth building and one that's worth putting effort into. So would you say that you're a Bitcoin maxi or do you find value in other cryptocurrency as well? Maybe a better way to ask that question is whether or not have you seen other cryptocurrencies helping people in the same way that you've seen Bitcoin helping people become financially independent or giving them access to financial infrastructure where that might not exist or helping people to even become more financially literate and uh, self-sovereign with the direction that um, that their money goes in and their understanding and use of money, you know, how that grows. So what's your take on that? Yeah, no, it's, it's super interesting as well, because I mean, I don't know if you've seen what Roger Veer's um, impact has been in St. Bart's and in St. Kitts. You know, he's Bitcoin cashing a couple of the islands there in the Caribbean, and he's obviously an OG Bitcoiner who was a maxier then after block size wars spun off into to Bitcoin cash. So he's there demonstrating to people that you can use this Bitcoin cash stuff as a, a peer-to-peer payment, which is of course what Satoshi intended. So why am I not supporting Bitcoin cash? And there's another example of when I was in Senegal and there's uh, a lady there called Mama Bitcoin. That's just her stage name or whatever. And she was one of the first people in West Africa to sell Bitcoin, sorry, sell fish for Bitcoin which is just quite fun. So she was, rather than accepting the local currency, the CFA, she was accepting Bitcoin for fish. And Tezos caught wind of what she was doing. And they said, hey, could you become the Tezos brand ambassador for West Africa? And she's selling fish every day, or mostly on the market days, for Bitcoin. She's obviously not, I mean, she won't mind me saying this, I'm sure, but like, you know, she's not rich. And if Tezos approaches you and say, hey, here's $800 a month to be our brand ambassador, you're probably going to jump at it. So aren't those two examples of these crypto projects doing amazing things for, you know, less advantaged economies around the world? Well, technically on the surface, they are, yes, but they're doing it with imperfect solutions that in the long term will rug pull them or close enough to that. Because let's be honest, all of these crypto projects eventually collapse into Bitcoin or they eventually collapse full stop. I mean, we saw enough of that last year. And, you know, 10, 15, 20, maybe 40 years time, will Bitcoin still be running? 1,000%. Will Ethereum still be running? Question marks. And will the other 20-ish thousand crypto projects still be going strong? I'm pretty confident they won't be. So this is sort of my logic to it. Yes, those crypto projects do help people. And, and I'd be a fool and one of those idiot toxic maxis to say otherwise. And I have seen impacts, you know, the positive impacts of these things around the world. But a lot of the time you're just thinking, why not do it with Bitcoin? 
Like, why not do it with something which is immutable, which is decentralized, and ultimately which anyone can partake in? And it is the fastest, the quickest. It's got all the superlatives. Why bother with <laughs> with another um, adjective? Unless you want to talk about, I don't know, smart contracts or what's the other thing that Bitcoin can't do and developers really can't do it? I forget the name of it. Drive chains. You can't do drive chains on Bitcoin. But if you want to talk about those sorts of things, yes, but I don't think they're going to be helping disadvantaged communities. And to your first question, am I a maxi? I don't know if it's, I'm a maxi or if I'm a, like a minimalist, because I just think there's no point in holding these other tokens. I still investigate them. I still research them and I still interview them as part of my job. You know, I'm Paris blockchain two weeks ago. I was interviewing all sorts of crypto CEOs and execs. I was trying to work out what their projects were doing. And it was amazing how many of them were saying, we're doing this thing where we're, we're transmitting money across borders. And I was like, can I send you some sats over the light work? And they're like, no. And I was like, please, can I just show you? And they're blown away by the fact that this Bitcoin thing, you know, the boomer coin, as people often refer to it, it works. And it often works so much better than the solutions that a lot of these guys are proposing. So yeah, it's a funny world, the crypto world. And I think sometimes there's a lot of ignorance, but sometimes there's a lot of just, it's not ignorance of the right world. We just weren't even aware that you could do that because Bitcoin has such a bad marketing problem. I mean, have you guys used the Lightning Network? Have you ever sent sats or streamed sats or should I send you some sats right now? We can do a live demonstration on the podcast. I don't have a wallet set up on my phone. So I'm glad you said that. Um, so if you go to the app store and type in wallet of Satoshi, uh -huh. are you on the app, uh, are you iOS or Android? I'm downloading it now, wallet of Satoshi. Just FYI, Wallet Satoshi is custodial, so you're not holding your own keys. If you wanted to do this, it's just the quickest one to demonstrate it to you. When I'm talking to people who know about crypto, i.e. you guys, I usually ask them to download Phoenix because then you're actually running a lightning node in your pocket. But just for the sake of this podcast, and because it's super easy and quick, we'll do Wallet Satoshi. All right. Receive, I assume. Yep. And then you should have like three options. One is like a static QR code. Mm -hmm. So you can put this like anywhere on your website and I can anyone can scan that and send you money. And it also has an email address with it. Do you see at the top line there, it has an email address? Yep. So that's now your email address that they create for you. It's like with old band names and stuff, but anyway. So if you just hold that up to the camera. So I'm going to send you a fiver in British pounds. I have no idea how much that is. If you tap in the top right corner of your phone where it says X, you've already received it. Wow, look at that. There it is. Yeah. Where are you right now, Jonathan? I'm in Brooklyn, in New York. So I'm in Lisbon, which is 4,500-ish miles away. Much faster than... Uh regular the layer one. Oh yeah that's for sure but it but it's also faster than solana or litecoin or bitcoin cash or anything else and if you do it properly with a non-custodial wallet no one knows that i've sent it to you on the receiving end there are issues with privacy which is like the next sort of challenge for the lightning network but yeah on the sending end it's uh, very very hard to understand what has been sent and for what reason you've been into crypto for how long jonathan i got into the space in 2020 right before the covid pandemic so you've been in this space three years. Lightning Network has been around for seven-ish. And yet, I'm the first person to send you sats. That's got to be a common story, right? Yeah. Bitcoin has such a marketing problem. No one... Yeah, it goes back to the marketing problem. That's right. But, you know, there's no CEO for Bitcoin, is there? There's no board of shareholders. There's no corporate headquarters. There's no marketing mm -hmm. team for it. So uh, we just have Gary Gensler telling us that it's a terrible <laughs> thing that you should avoid, right? Or is it? Because he's so confused the whole time. Yeah, he must be using the regular, you know, SHA-256 slow Bitcoin network. Maybe that's his issue. Yeah. So, Joe, I recall you going to a few places and people actually have zero awareness of Bitcoin or crypto payment rails in general. What's that like for you? And 
What have you observed as being most challenging for people who are newly exposed to Bitcoin or looking to interact with it? Fascinating. These are great questions, guys. Um, so the um, Bitcoin, the word, means everything we understand what it is immediately. And the people listening at home will understand what it is as well. But 90% of the world has probably never uttered the word Bitcoin before. Like 70% of the world has no idea what it is. And 40% of the world has probably never, ever seen it, heard it, anything before. And I know this because of trying to interact with people all around the world. In St. Lucia, someone corrected me and said, Bitcoin? Like, why are you talking to me about Bitcoin? Like, she thought I was insulting her. And I was like, I'm so sorry. No, no, it's Bitcoin. It's like a, it's like magic internet money. And when you're starting this base level of zero, no understanding of what Bitcoin is, the best thing to do is just to send them some and show that you can pay for things everywhere. El Salvador really helped with this because El Salvador really put Bitcoin on sort of the world map. And lots of developing countries around the world looked at El Salvador and thought, huh, what are they doing? And then they look at their stats and their GDP and you know tourism numbers going up, business investments going up and think, oh, maybe this is a good move. This is a good play. So I think a lot of countries might copy the El Salvador playbook at some point. But I found that, yeah, in Europe, for example, where I do a lot of this content, most people know what Bitcoin is or have at least heard of it in, in some shape or form. But yeah, if you go to, even in Senegal, awareness was very, very low. Cape Verde awareness was practically non-existent. And even the bar, there's one bar restaurant hotel complex that accepts Bitcoin in Cape Verde. And I was like, oh, wicked, I'll, I'll speak to the owner. He must be some sort of laser-eyed, orange-pilled, steak-eating Bitcoin maxi person. And I went to meet him and he was the most lovely Italian fella who'd moved out to Cape Verde 25 years ago. And he was like, well, yeah, I hate Visa and MasterCard. They keep ripping my company off. And with Bitcoin, I can just peer-to-peer. -peer. And I was like, oh, wow, that is, I could, did not expect that response from you at all. And then I went to pay and he just gave me an, a Bitcoin base chain wallet address, which was basically his ledger. <laughs> and I was just paying straight to his ledger. And I was like, oh, dude, this is not best practice. Let's sit down. Let's have a conversation together. <laughs> and so first I showed him the Lightning Network and said, you know, this is how you create an invoice. And similar to what I just did with Jonathan, but with a, a different solution, I said, you know, you could put this on all of the terminals in your, it's quite a big restaurant, so maybe four or five payment terminals. You could put that on all of those payment terminals. All your staff have to do is type in $20, creates an invoice and away you go. And it's Lightning. So it's quick. And he'd never heard of Lightning before again. So yeah, even the people that you expect to be down the Bitcoin rabbit hole are still not aware of all these crazy sort of wild solutions that are going on. Anything from static Lightning addresses where you can literally email people money. We think we're there. We think we're near to you know mass adoption and all this sort of stuff. I think we're like 20 years away. Realistically, we're going to be in these jobs for a lot longer, gentlemen. Um, so, you know, I hope you're sitting comfortably. In your ideal vision, if the whole world is orange-pilled, right, what does mass adoption look like? Hopefully, it'll be like 1% is orange-pilled and the rest are just going about their day jobs and their, you know, their creative pursuits. And there's just saving in Bitcoin because it's the best money and that's how you save nowadays. Hopefully it'll be a world where no one is a Bitcoiner because everyone's a Bitcoiner, if that makes sense. Like it's not like you had dollar <laughs> maxis going around in like the eighteen hundreds being like, yo, let's dollarize the world. I mean, I guess that was to some extent what the, the US Army does in a way, um, without getting too dark. Um <laughs> but um yeah, no, it'd be a world where I will put myself out of a job. Right now, I try to sort of explain the underdog stories and examine Bitcoin adoption around the world. And in this vision, I will not be doing that anymore. I'll be, I don't know what I'll be doing yet, but that's the, that bridge I'll cross when I come to it. 
but yeah, it will just be similar to the world we have now, but with fewer financial struggles, less inequality, and you know, you'd be able to, if you're a teenager or you're a kid growing up and you want to do that thing that you dreamed of doing, you could find a way to do it without having to go into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and without having to work three jobs and without having to think, oh my God, at this rate, I will never be able to afford a home. So why even bother? Why would I even bother contributing to my pension? Because I will never retire. I mean, why am I even bothering to recycle this extra bottle? Because the world's fucked anyway, isn't it? So yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a world um, of more hope, hopefully of more sort of human connection as well. I hope that we'll, I mean, this is getting really idealistic and probably a bit naive, but hopefully it'll be a world where we spend more time outside, more time in communities. Um, and that's one of the parts of Bitcoin that I really enjoy as well. The fact that it, I do spend more time with people in the Bitcoin space than I used to pre-Bitcoin. And yeah, I think there's more human connection, more laughter, you know, more real life living as opposed to spending more time trying to gear towards some metaverse or some horrible thing where you have to put goggles on and hang out in the digital realm, um, which don't get me wrong, we'll have a space, you know, wherever we go, we're always going to want to seek out even more thrilling entertainment vectors. Gaming in 30 years will be incredible. Um, imagine going to the cinema in 30 years, it'll be, you know, your seat might take off, but um, I would hope that, yeah, we'd be able to spend more time with our families and friends because we're not working 50 hour weeks. And yeah, the be all and end all in life won't be about making money. It'll be about, you know, trying to get the, to the bottom of what life is about. And a lot of people do that through their pursuits and through asking us questions that throw them into their, their hobbies and desires. I was not around. Well, I was not in crypto, I should say. at the. I was around, but not in crypto in the Bitcoin space when Bitcoin first launched. When Satoshi wrote the white paper, I mentioned earlier, I didn't get in until 2020. So I'm a little bit late in terms of not a true OG by any means. But to me, and I think many others, from what I understand about how the space began, it feels like sort of the original anti-authoritarian, cypherpunk, encryption, counterculture element of Bitcoin has sort of been slowly fading away or at least seriously diminished in relevance. Like I mentioned in my intro, again, some people see it as a purely speculative asset to make money off of it. A lot of people hold it in custodial wallets on Coinbase. Their password is just one, two, three, dog, or something like that. There's like no security, nobody, people aren't self-custodying. A lot of people don't understand the most basic concepts of how blockchain works, how Bitcoin works, and they have zero ideological connection with the idea of Bitcoin being the sort of uncensorable money. And what I described is how we might define the sort of average retail investor, at least here in the US, uh, somebody who just sees, okay, this is going up, so I'm going to put money in, and I'm going to watch it go up and hopefully I'll make some money. So on one hand, if you're like a crypto OG or you're really in it for the ideological reasons, it seems a little bit upsetting or frightening perhaps that we've strayed so far in my perspective from the original kind of idea of what Bitcoin is meant to do and be. But on the other hand, people like my friends, my mom, shout out to her if she's listening, the people that you've been talking to on the streets are able to invest in and own Bitcoin and benefit from its scarcity as an investment to digital gold or send it without the middlemen. And they're seeing the real benefits of Bitcoin without understanding or having any connection with the sort of foundation uh, or how Bitcoin was founded and what the cypherpunks thought Bitcoin might be. So how should we approach this sort of seeming contradiction that is kind of inherent as I see it in mass adoption where 
in order for the average person on the street, that 90% of people that you mentioned to benefit from Bitcoin, you have to seemingly set up the infrastructure for them to do it in very simple, straightforward and easy, uncomplicated, non-technological ways. But then does that sort of strike at the core of what Bitcoin is supposed to be about self-sovereignty? And um, how do we balance that? Is that just an inherent trait that will come with mass adoption? Another fantastic question. Um, one thing about the sort of founding of Bitcoin, like it was, it was an invention. What Satoshi did was to solve a an internet problem that had been unsolvable until that moment. And so it was kind of like a, a turning point in computer science in that he solved the double spend problem. So the idea that when I send you an email, it's basically copying that email to you. Whereas he realized that he could, through some computational, you know, hashing and all that, he could send you something and it's actually sending that digital artifact to you. And prior to that moment, that was just completely un- unthinkable. And that's why like, it was such a revolutionary thing. And that's why he was laughed at for the first you know, six to seven months of him being on the cypherpunk mailing list. Because people were like, bro, are you trying to create digital money again? We know this isn't solvable. And eventually, you know, Hal Finney came around and then others, Zabo and others came around to the idea. And this is the thing for Bitcoin, which is so revolutionary. I think that we will look back in 80 years or less and think, holy cow, that was the, that was the thing that defined this century. It might be AI as well, but I think that, yeah, Bitcoin is one of the technological innovations and inventions of this century. And that's why as well, you are an OG, Jonathan. 2020 was only 10, 11 years after the creation of Bitcoin. And it's uh, there'll be people, I mean, your kids, if you have kids or you want kids or whatever, they'll be like, oh my God, dad, you were in Bitcoin in, in 2020, tell me about it. We're living through very fascinating times by being able to document this phenomenal piece of technology. With regards to your question, the, the ease of use is effectively what you're getting at, right? It's the idea that, you know, this this cypherpunk movement, which sounds like completely lofty and wild, how do we make that more applicable to the mainstream? And I'm hoping that with more voices like ours collectively and with more content from people like Cointelegraph, we can break it down in a meaningful way and make it so that, I mean, it is very easy to run a Bitcoin node. All you have to do is go to Bitcoin Core and download it. Like you are running a node. Congratulations. You are now part of this decentralized movement. Um, to take part in the Lightning Network now, you just proved to me how easy it is. I sent you sats from Lisbon to, to New York. To have a hardware wallet or to you know keep your Bitcoin storage correctly or you know as close to correct as possible, then all you have to do is write down 12 words and keep it somewhere safe and ideally have a backup of it somewhere as well. I think it's insulting to people that we don't think they can do that because most people nowadays can send an email and they can get on WhatsApp. And my dad can hold his own keys. I mean, he's still technically a professional doctor, but you know what I mean? He's uh, he's not with it when it comes to the internet with data, that sort of stuff. Isn't that hard, but I get where you're coming from in that these cypherpunk sort of esoteric characters came up with this crazy invention that's really hard to understand. And now we've got to break it down into sort of bite-sized pieces. I think that, again, it comes back to you know what Ray was saying, and I pitched it. Bitcoin has this marketing problem, and people approach it as like, whoa, it's like up on this pedestal somewhere, when in reality, it's just money. And most people in the West nowadays have their online banking. Um, if they're able to do online banking, then they are more than capable of sending Bitcoin. My girlfriend, for example, she's super creative, she's really artistic, and she's awful with numbers. And she won't mind me saying that. She, she's the first to say it. Uh, she approaches it through a completely different lens to what I did. Like I've always been quite into maths and I actually studied economics university. So I do actually geek out on that sort of stuff. But she approached it through a totally different lens, which is like by changing our approach to money and by sort of prioritizing saving over spending 
um, because that's what you do when stack sats. You know the Bitcoin expression to stack sats? It's basically code for save money, which we're not really taught to do as a society because it's all about buy now. It's all about take out credit. It's all about split up your credit over three or four months, whatever it is. She gets a lot of out of Bitcoin through that lens. Um, she used to be massively consumerist, and now she's realized the value in thinking about a future and planning for a future. And in having a future, you actually get a lot more happy. So yeah, I think that there's uh, everyone approaches Bitcoin from a different lens. And as you point out in the intro, you know it's for everyone. And we are now seeing, I mean, I'm a lefty and I'm into Bitcoin and I hang out with anarcho-capitalists. I hang out with anarchists. I hang out with libertarians and I disagree with them massively about how we organize societies. But bizarrely, we all bound around this one decentralized idea, which is Bitcoin. But yeah, unfortunately, the loudest voice, particularly in the beginning, was cypherpunk sort of anarchists. But there were different waves, right? Then you had the computer scientists, then you had the VCs, and then you had the speculative people in 2017. Um, now I think you're getting a lot more progressives, a lot more sort of more mainstreamy kind of people. I would put myself in that bucket as well. Like I'm not, you know, I'm definitely more sort of mainstream than regular. I'm just a, a regular average Joe. Even you're an average Joe. Well, yeah, I've played with this a lot. Like I'm called Joe. I'm, I'm always going to get it. But I wonder what the next cycle will bring. Beyond the ideological and the philosophical, what is Bitcoin's greatest use or value to you? Is it a binder of people? Is it a restorer of financial self-sovereignty? Is it the best store of value? Is it an investment? Is it a real medium of exchange? What is it to you? Like stepping out of ideology and being all philosophical. Damn it, because I was going to give you another, I was going to be like, it's a beacon of hope. But that's the thing, it grows to way more than just uh, to numbers and things. But I guess its use case to me is that it is just money. It's the only money I have. It's the only money I think I ever will have. And it's the money I had when I was a kid, right? When you're a kid and you get like, I mean, I've, I've done odd jobs since I was about 14. You cash and then you put it under your pillow or you put it in your shoebox or whatever. And then you spend it at the, the tuck shop, which is like a sweet store, a candy store. What do you call it in the US? Candy store, I guess. And then, uh, yeah, you try to save it for a new skateboard or the Nintendo 64, whatever it might be. That's what Bitcoin is for me. I get paid in it and then I save it and then I spend it. And then because it does go up in value over time, crucial thing there is over time and ideally four-year cycles. Because once you've done a, a four-year cycle, everything just fades into like meh, like whatever. It's going up and down in value, but in the long term, we're all okay. So yeah, it's kids' money. I guess that, can I say that? It's money that you had when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah, money that has pleasant utility. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, because it is very pleasant to me and I do get a lot of uh, a joy out of it. I mean, the only issue is that paying taxes as someone paid in Bitcoin is still an absolute faff because unfortunately, His Majesty's Revenue and Customs does not accept Bitcoin as payment for tax. So I still have to navigate the issue of, you know, selling Bitcoin to pay taxes and things. But I hope uh, the government is one of the last uh, institutions to be orange pilled and to start accepting Bitcoin. It's that or I, you know, move to a much more Bitcoin friendly jurisdiction or, or country around the world. But yeah, I guess Bitcoin is just money. Because for me, it's not a store of value because it's that plus my medium of exchange. It's that plus my income. So money is the best word, I guess, to, to say that. But that, that just seems to me as a bit more of like a square sort of black and white answer without getting into the philosophical sort of side of things, which I know we've probably delved into way too much by now anyway. No, I think we got into it quite well and the audience kind of knows who you are and where you stand now. I agree with you. To me, Bitcoin is money and it's the 
for me, it's, um, it's kind of like a nest egg. It's an investment. I look at it from like, if you look at a logarithmic chart of its last 10 plus years of price action, it only continues to go up. And because of that, it makes it whenever I have issues and need to spend money, it is literally the last form of money that I ever want to spend. But then, um, also because it's all, you know, like on a ledger or on a hard wallet, it's a bit of a pain in the neck to hook that thing up and go through all the rigmarole of actually finding a way to cash out and bring it back into fiat. That's no fun. It takes forever. But yeah, to me, it's money also. It's not yet become play money, but um, perhaps in the future it will. So an interesting quip about that, living on a Bitcoin standard is, it made it all apparent to me when someone said on a podcast like two years ago, they're like, I wish I'd bought Bitcoin rather than a new pair of shoes eight years ago because it would have been worth, you know, $10,000 now. And the person who's living on a Bitcoin standard said to them, well, yeah, wouldn't you rather that all of your other money also be in Bitcoin back then? Because then all of your money would be worth 10000 plus whatever your money was worth back then and the, the increment as well. The point I'm trying to make is that when you go onto a Bitcoin standard, you think that you would no longer go through those sort of money equations in your head of, oh, well, I could spend this, but it's going to go up in value later. So why would I spend it? But so for day-to-day stuff, I don't think about it a lot at all because we have to live, we have to feed ourselves, we have to pay rent, we have to you know pay for utilities and things. But when it comes to bigger stuff, I mull over them so much more because I know that one day that, um, so I need to get a new surfboard because my current one has like a massive ding in it that's just not repairable. And I was going to put the deposit down to get it shaped, which is $100. And I was going to do it on Friday of last week. And I was like, oh, but do I really want to do it? Maybe I can get some more sort of miles out of my current surfboard. And it was only $100, which was part of the down payment to this $800 surfboard, right? So you'd expect it to be not a big deal. But even that I mulled over because of the fact that, you know, Bitcoin is uh, this asset that tends to go up over time. So it's really funny how that can sort of mess with you a bit. So I think that, yeah, your approach to bigger purchases, it definitely changes that. And it definitely makes you think twice slash 21 times about your approach to things in life. Which also means you you value the good things in life, which are free, as we know. You know, all the best things in life are free. Yeah, I agree. So in a way, it makes you more financially aware and and financially disciplined and maybe responsible, whereas currencies Mm. like the dollar are constantly losing value. And your relationship with money perhaps changes. It's a more positive and hopeful uh, relationship with Bitcoin, whereas my use of the dollar, I really view it as kind of like a thoroughfare to tedium. So everything you do in America <laughs> requires money, the exchange of money or touching money. Everything is valued in terms of and broken down in terms of money. All of your social experiences generally require money. So you categorize and select and prioritize what you're going to do, who you're going to hang out, where you're going to go, what experience you're going to have based off money, not off the good time or the socialization or the new experiences or the memory. So for me, the dollar, in addition to losing value uh, yearly, is also just, it is an analog for tedium in my personal life. Um, Whereas Bitcoin doesn't have that. It has not yet like put on that apron, if you know what I mean. Mm, That's a great tweet, by the way. The thoroughfare, tedium of thoroughfare. The dollar is the tedium of thoroughfare. I would retweet that. Yeah, it is. It's a thoroughfare to tedium. It's like the roadway to more tedium, you know? <laughs> so anyway, feel free to tweet that out. No problem. I <laughs> know. I was going to say you tweet it. I'll retweet it. All right. I'll do that. I'll <laughs> do that in a few minutes. 
thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Keep spreading the good word of Satoshi, the good gospel of Satoshi. I enjoy your energy. You're super positive. Like, I don't really travel in too many social circles, crypto social circles, and mainly it's traders that are around me. So this positive energy does not really exist. So it's nice to to just bask in your positivity for an hour. That was great. <laughs> and your optimism. Oh, thanks, mate. I appreciate it. Um, still thanks to Bitcoin. Someone once criticized me for being the happiest man in Bitcoin. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's good. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with us, Joe. This has been an absolute pleasure. My, it's really fascinating learning so much more about your your life. You know, I, similar to Elijah speaking with him, I see you every day. I see your avatar on Slack every day. But because we live so far away, I don't get to actually speak with you in person very often. Or if I do, it's on a call with 20 other people. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're an inspiration. You've been inspiring me this whole conversation. And now I got to go find someone I can send a sat to <laughs> via the Lightning Network. <laughs> my pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for the kind words. And thank you for editing, sorry, copy editing my work so well. Um, it was really great to hang out. And thank you very much for the opportunity to, to chat and hang out. I hope we get to do it again in person, maybe. The Agenda is hosted and produced by me, Ray Salmon. And by me, Jonathan DeYoung. You can listen and subscribe to The Agenda at cointelegraph.com slash podcasts or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and leave a review. You can find me on Twitter at Horace Hughes, H-O-R-U-S-H-U-G-H-E-S, and I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and just about everywhere else at Mad Dope Matic. That's M-A-D-D-O-P-E-M-A-D-I-C. Be sure to follow Cointelegraph on Twitter and Instagram at Cointelegraph. 